there was a very particular occasion. It was a social media post uh, that someone had put up. And I looked at that and what I wanted to write in my response, which I didn't, but I said, this is epistemic porn. That's Andrew Spear, a professor of philosophy at Grand Valley State University. More specifically, Andrew is an epistemologist. His primary interest is in knowledge. He asks how we come to our beliefs about the world, how we come to know things or believe that we know things, and how we justify our beliefs. I wanted to talk with Andrew because I wanted to know how his work as an epistemologist has responded to our current political moment. It's taken for granted, probably for good reason, uh, that our situation, our political conversation is, in terms Andrew himself has used, utterly anti-epistemological. We all could guess what Andrew is pointing to with that phrase. Fake news, say, or Kelly Ann Conway's alternative facts. Early in our conversation, I asked Andrew about what I've always imagined, rightly or wrongly, to be the conventional relationship between politics and epistemology. If epistemology is concerned with how we establish questions of facts and knowledge, then it seems like epistemology ought to precede politics. In other words, we should be able to distinguish or separate questions of partisanship and questions of fact. We should be able to look at the same economic facts about, say, the 2008 financial crisis, and from this starting position, reasonable people could disagree about what should be done about the facts, about the crisis, generally. Of course, there's maybe something that's naive about that conception or distinction. Still, what seems unique about our current political situation is that this perhaps naive but still probably kind of useful distinction has been utterly abandoned. All facts are politicized. What one chooses to believe seems entirely dependent on one's politics. Andrew and I talk about the dangers of this state of affairs. One such danger, to become addicted to what Andrew calls, quite aptly, epistemic porn. In this episode, Andrew offers a definition of epistemic porn, We discuss the implications of the definition as well as the definition itself. Still, let's be real, you know epistemic porn when you see it. I'm going to drop you into the middle of our conversation with Andrew Spear just before we start talking definitions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. The attempt to form beliefs that are going to guide you in your life uh, and give you direction and meaning and purpose is hard. It's hard. Um, It's intellectually hard and it's existentially hard from day to day, moment to moment, year to year. And seeing the ways in which, you know, very just kind of the human side of forming beliefs, which is something that historically epistemologists have given less weight and consideration to, but the human side, the way in which Social pressures, personal pressures, existential pressures affect people's attitude toward each other, uh, toward reason, toward their politics, um, has been a really important uh, uh, topic that I've begun sort of taking up, taking up and thinking about more. But to return to the other side, not the fragility of believers, but their responsibilities, epistemic porn. Um, so what is this? And, and it is, I, I should, I just want to uh, claim ownership of the title here, Epistemic Porn. Uh, I came up with that. I've never seen it anywhere else. Uh, and I came up with it, actually, uh, there was a very particular occasion. It was a social media post uh, that someone had put up. 
And I looked at that and what I wanted to write in my response, which I didn't, but I said, this is epistemic porn. So what is epistemic porn? Well, of course, I'm trying to invoke uh, regular pornography here, right? So what is regular pornography? Well, pornography, uh, if I were going to give a rough and ready definition, there are philosophers who argue about just how we should think of pornography. There are social critics who do the same. But I would say it's, you know, it's something like, um, a presentation of, of nakedness, sexuality, or sexual acts, or the suggestion of these things, um, which are going to kind of titillate the person who sees them in a specifically uh, sexual way, uh, cause a kind of a, a imaginative or actual excitement of a sexual nature in them. Um, so if you'll accept that as a characterization of, of pornography, what's important about it? Well, it, it appeals to something very fundamental about us. People are sexual beings. Um, Pornography is is a way of getting their attention, of exciting them. Now, let's talk about the consumer of pornography. Um, I don't have a big moral beef with uh, pornography as such. I don't I don't think it's like always immoral or anything like that. But I do think one has to uh, treat it very carefully from a moral standpoint. Uh, in particular, I think one makes a huge mistake if one looks at the kind of the kind of titillation and excitement caused by viewing pornographic images or watching pornographic films and takes that to be um, the entirety of kind of human sexual and romantic possibility, mm. right? It's this titillation of a very, of kind of a, you know, a weakness in our nature um, and blows it up into, oh, this is all that there is, or this is the truth about human sexuality and romance. Uh, pornography should be this, this, you know, very, very small, uh, component of that. You're missing something if you believe pornography is the whole. All right, that's uh, normal pornography. Epistemic pornography is, an, is pornography that appeals not to your, to your body, but to your mind, to you and to some of your weaknesses that I was just talking about as a believing uh, creature. Um, I define epistemic pornography as a, a presentation of uh, information, so it could be a news article, could also be a video, it could be a short post. I think the classic internet meme with two to three sentences on it is probably the classic example I would give of epistemic porn, but it can be longer. It can be a whole newspaper article or opinion article as well. And what it's going to do is it's going to present um, its main claims as unconditionally true. So it's not just presenting a claim, it's a way of presenting a claim. And if you've read, uh, basically think of any newspaper or internet post that that is about news or news opinion political opinion that opens with an all caps boom exclamation point at the beginning this is a sign that you're dealing with what i call epistemic porn it unit it, it uh affirms unconditionally some particular thesis it typically provides some evidence in support of that so it's not without any evidence it's like yeah the president just did this or congress just did that um, in support of its claim, but it presents that evidence as the only relevant evidence and as providing conclusive support for the claim that has already been, uh, you know, put forward as kind of the main claim. Um, now, it's epistemic porn for you then if it is deeply compatible with a worldview you already have or a view of, you know, of politics or culture, society, morality that you already have. Um, so it's already so this is why it's porn for you. So for different articles will be epistemic porn for different people. It's got to be compatible with your particular worldview. 
And finally, the fourth sort of element of epistemic porn is it, it, ten, it tends not only to present what you already believe to you as unconditionally true on the basis of evidence that is unquestionable, it also tends to congratulate its reader, its consumer, for having, um, for being the kind of person who understands the first three things that I just said, that this is true, that this evidence universally and without question supports it, you get a kind of congratulation out of it. Um, so if something meets these four criteria for a given person, it's epistemic porn. I think that it is dangerous in the same way that, uh, regular pornography is. I could forgive a person, whether on the right or on the left, for occasionally consuming a little epistemic porn. I don't think that it's morally objectionable necessarily to just go to that site or pick up that newspaper that you know is going to back your views, provide you with evidence for them, and affirm you as a human being for having them, okay, uh, once in a while. But if you start to believe that what you're being given in that epistemic porn is the entire of discursive life, that it's really true what you are getting uh, fed there, that there really are no other questions, there really is no criticism, that there really uh, uh, you know, may not be other facts to take into account, and that you may not actually be as special as that particular news source is kind of letting you think you are for holding your beliefs. Uh, if you start to believe that that is the whole truth, you're now making the same mistake with pornography for your mind, what I call epistemic porn, that uh, one might be tempted to make with pornography for the body, that this is the entirety of romantic and sexual human relations. Similarly, uh, newspaper articles that affirm you in this way, uh, if you mistake them for the entirety of the issue, the entirety of the debate, or the entirety of how you should interact with your fellow human beings, it's either your way or the highway, it's either your right or get out, um, you've now made a huge mistake. And here's what I think, though. I think that whereas it's relatively easy if we make an effort to distinguish between a physical pornographic image or film and real romantic engagement with another human being, um, I think it's much more difficult to both consume epistemic pornography and not let it blur into your reality or mm. become reality. Uh, and so what I, what I think people, so I, and I think it's out there. I think it's uh, on the right and the left. If you want to find, uh, you know, a, a blog, a newspaper, a faux newspaper that will give you this sensation of universal affirmation of your beliefs, and even as being a, a good rational person for holding those beliefs, you can find it. It's out there. Uh, so you have to be really careful as a consumer of media, as a consumer of news, not to become an epistemic porn addict. So what I say to people is, look, as you flip through your Facebook feed, as you go from one newspaper to the next, as you look at your Google results, as you are forming your beliefs on the basis of reading an article, ask yourself, is this epistemic porn? And am I enjoying it? <laughs> just a little too much. <laughs> well, I'm I'm gonna linger on these on these sexual metaphors, Andrew, okay. because I th it it actually is quite titillating in itself, and I don't feel bad about it. Good. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I th you used a term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. You use um you used a term that when you visit a site a, a site that you suspect of being a 
epistemic or epistemic porn that it congratulates you in your views. I think that's accurate, and it reminds me of I, the the masturbatory function of these sites. And I, I think just just to add to your definition, it does seem like obviously say if you're on the far right and you visit you know i'll throw out breitbart i think that's fair enough i think we can all say that breitbart is 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 um an arbiter and and purveyor of a lot of epistemic porn um that that uh, if you're on the right and you visit this site that you will be congratulated in your view and it will serve a kind of masturbatory function i think as well though it's possible to go if, if you're on say the far right to go to the far left and to consume what might function as epistemic porn for someone on the far left and also get the same reaction, which is look at how terrible the other side is. Uh, okay. And to congratulate yourself, yourself and your view in that sense, because you're not being challenged by it because it is to you self-evidently untrue and just in proof only of the utter absurdity, say, of, you know, if you're on the far right, of campus liberal snowflakes. I guess I'm wondering, and I'm hoping to ask you just to talk a bit more about, you know, it, when you're sifting through all of the articles that are shared on Facebook or, um, or on Twitter or whatever, how do you tell the difference between, how do you tell the difference between the, the search for simply the right kinds of information and analysis uh, the sort that actually helps us make sense of the world in a reasonable way and an unhealthy addiction. And I ask that because it does seem to me that, I mean, it, it's not always true, of course, that 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 um, the best position on a political question is the one in the middle, is the reasonable centrist one. Yeah, exactly. And, and right. so at times, you know, you can. The, it, it may very well be the case that a leftist answer to a particular question is is a good one. Um and you would get that on a leftist site, or and the same is true for conservatives. Perhaps, perhaps um, a conservative answer to a political question is just a very good, reasonable one. How do you, how, how do you determine whether your search for information about that political question is is done earnestly and honestly, um, and reasonably? Uh, how do you determine that as opposed to you know just you are secretly lying to yourself and just on the, on the hunt for porn? All right, this is getting pretty difficult now. We're we're trying to look into our our inner, <laughs> yeah. I'm asking for some introspection our, here. Our inner epistemic selves. Um, so great, the all, all that you've said, I think, is really important uh, on the uh, the kind of point you made about the epistemic porn. Exactly, that was something I didn't say, but that is crucial. In addition to being bad for you, if you consume epistemic porn for yourself, that you know gives you validation. Uh, epistemic porn is also bad as a uh, as a tool for trying to convince people who don't agree with you because just as you said they will look at it and it will be rather transparent that this is self-congratulatory uh, if we might say BS right um, right and left both will will smell that as it were um, and so it is it is uh, an impediment to discourse kind of in both directions uh, so it's really important to avoid that now how how do we avoid it well First of all, um, you know, I gave up in terms of the epistemic porn, like this particular category, which is becoming, I think, if anything, more prominent um, in the last, you know, eight months or so on on both sides. Right. There's a lot of anger out there. There's a lot of emotion. Um, and there is a lot there are a lot of people, I think, who just feel like I'm done 
arguing. I'm ready to just be angry and, you know, let it swing. Um, and I think, we, you know, in a democracy, in a, in a country based on, on rule of law, I think it is really important that we, we say, wait, uh, not not physical violence, but some kind of discourse mm. should should be the thing we hang on to for as long as we can. But you're still asking the question, how do we do that? So one thing I say is, well, you know, do ask yourself as you're consuming something, is this validating me a little too much? Am I feeling a little too good <laughs> as I read this? If you are, that is a hint that you might have a piece of, of epistemic uh, porn in front of you. That doesn't mean you have to navigate away, but it means that you now should uh, – should exercise extra scrutiny, extra caution as you take in uh, claims about evidence, you know, uh, statistics, numbers, demographics, and arguments or reasoning offered by that uh, piece of, uh, of, of journalism or of opinion or whatever it might be. More generally, uh, there, I think there are, there are two aspects. So how do you tell? Well, uh, one thing that is crucial is just to constantly practice skills of sort of good and critical reasoning. I mean, there's something to be said for an introductory to logic course or to be to being familiar with sort of the informal fallacies of reasoning uh, that people typically make. And you don't necessarily have to go to a university for these things. I mean, there's actually some great uh, non epistemic porn kind of information online about logic and logical fallacies in reasoning. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the, the way you're going to see whether an argument being made is a good one or not is by understanding how arguments work. And that's not something you can tell by looking at the uh, piece of news or opinion. It's something you can tell by having certain skills, by having trained your mind in a certain way. So we're really getting introspective now. You have to be a certain kind of person. Mm. Uh, but I think that's true. And I mean, it's, it's true for reasoning. It's, it's probably true for, you know, deep religious belief, too. Is my religious conviction sincere? Well, you have to, you have to know some things about the religion to understand that. Uh, I think critical reasoning is different than religion in a lot of ways, but it's a skill. It's something you have to internalize and have. Uh, and I should add, we don't really teach much of it in you know, public education prior to college. The first opportunity most people have to take critical thinking or logic class is their freshman year of college in the United States. And this is something to, to think about. Uh, but in terms of how can I, you know, as you look at sites on the internet, another question you might have is not, is the argument a good one, but is the information I'm being given basically correct or factual? Uh, that is, is it accurate to the world? Um, and here you're up against a different kind of challenge, which is if you're anything like me, uh, you're not able to personally validate most of the claims made uh, by news sites online because you haven't gone to those places. Uh, you know, and you can't just go there now to check. Uh, even when they say something has happened in a different part of the United States or that Congress has done something or that such and such a senator voted in such and such a way, you know, how can you trust that? How can you be sure it's true? Uh, and then, you know, similar claims about historical facts and, of course, international uh, claims about things going on in other countries even more. So you have to, we all have to trust third parties to provide us with this information. You know, we can't get it all ourselves. Uh, and I think this is one of the big challenges that we're facing today is um, the Internet of Things has made it possible 
for many, many, for a, for a proliferation of, you know, sites claiming to be giving you the real facts, the real story about what's going on somewhere. Um, and it's very difficult for the average person and even for someone who's quite critical and careful to always distinguish whether they're being sort of fed a partisan line or whether, uh, whether this is from a news source that they can basically trust as uh, at least giving them the basic facts of the case as they're happening or as they've happened, as opposed to being genuinely fake news, simply something made up for the sake of uh, stirring or validating a partisan position. And I should mention, once again, this New York Times op-ed from Samantha Power that I mentioned, uh, she specifically points to this uh, as one reason why populations are more susceptible to sort of manipulation by fake news. There's not... There are no longer, as there once were, clear kind of uh, respected and authoritative gatekeepers for mm -hmm. the flow of of uh, facts and information through uh, through populations uh, from one place to another. If I were going to get a little more specific, how do I actually do this? Um, how do I handle this when I am in a, a kind of discussion or debate with someone on? Uh, typically, it is on social media. I'll just admit. Uh, suppose that happens. Um, here I, I like to try to take my point of departure largely from uh, from the academy, you know, from the university, which is what I know. Uh, in the academy, how do you know that you can trust a, a claim by a purported, you know, scientist or political scientist or literary critic or, uh, heaven forbid, philosopher? You know, how do you know that something that's being said by an academic in uh, in a certain context is trustworthy and reliable has been subjected to some kind of scrutiny. And in the academy, a big part of the answer, there's two big parts to the answer. One is uh, people who are, you know, professors and researchers in the academy have typically undergone a long and serious process of uh, training and study. They've typically done a master's and more likely a PhD. They've spent time as postdocs. They've carried out research and been trained by past uh, producers of knowledge. Um, that's not a guarantee that what they say is true, but it's a really good reason to listen to them, <laughs> to give them a special kind of credibility that you shouldn't give to, uh, Joe blow 27 at yahoo.com in the comments section. Uh, that, that training means something. And another thing that means something, uh, in the academic context is what we call peer review, which is where in addition to having gone through that training, in order to get published in a serious academic or scholarly context, uh, your article, your book will be read by other people who have gone through that same training and uh, now carry out research, serious research in that same field. Again, whether it's science, whether it's history, whether it's uh, you name the field. And they have checked it for the rigor of the arguments, the accuracy of the claims, the correctness of the methodology by their best lights. Um, so when you read something, in a peer-reviewed scientific journal uh, by someone who is at either a, a research center or a university, um, they they should have, in light of all of this training and all of this rigorous uh, checking, a kind of credibility that the average person does not in the field uh, that they are you know trained and credible in. Obviously, you don't listen to, you don't give special credit to a. Uh, uh, a medical researcher and scientist on issues of law or legal policy because that person doesn't have expertise there. But in their area of expertise, they have a special kind of credibility. 
Um, in addition, in the academy, uh, so we have this sort of training and peer review. There's uh, criteria. In addition, we have uh, citation, right? Authors who uh, say that something is the case don't just make that claim. They argue for it. They, prevent evidence, they present evidence they've provided, and they cite relevant uh, sources, themselves credible, that support uh, what they've said. They show you that not just themselves, but uh, many scholars or authoritative sources are, are on board or provide points of, of consideration. Uh, two other factors I'll mention. Well, in I each should, one. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm just going to ask a quick question about that. I've been, I've been sort of, as you've been describing this, um, I've been sort of thinking almost in a defeatist way because what you've so, <laughs> so what, what you've so um, expertly described is a form of, of establishing expertise that mm -hmm. is very systematic um, very based on the legacies of academic institutions and their and the way they've developed methodologies um, that are centuries long in history. But it does seem like, especially in America, there has, of course, always been a, a strain of populist anti-intellectualism. And it seems like, uh, you know, whenever you hear critiques from of the academy, from outside the academy, from folks who look at expertise in the academy and don't necessarily see that as a sign of ideologically balanced rigor and thoughtfulness, but in fact a, a very layered form of liberal ideology. Um, right. The people who look at the academy and would see that someone got a PhD and would think, oh, that just means that for seven or eight years they were very systematically brainwashed. This may not be true for, say, medical doctors, but I think it's definitely argued often for people in my, in my field, say, in literary study, or perhaps in philosophy as well. I'm just wondering if you, if you think this characterization is fair or at least true for people outside the academy. But the erosion of trust in academics as being somehow, somehow ideologically balanced or neutral, but in fact, in a sense, to people on the outside, ideologically compromised in a very fundamental way, whether you see that as the erosion of, of the last possible manner in which we could establish some form of credibility and trustworthiness outside political debate. Whew. Good. Does that question make sense? It's something I worry it, about a lot. It, it makes fantastic sense, Joe. Uh, so let me say this. I feel like there are, there are two issues on the table now. Uh, I, I was taking a little too long to answer your question, how do you decide? And I use the academy as my model. The original question was, how should we decide which news sources or uh, newspapers, establishments to trust? And I guess what I wanted to argue for was a analogy with the academy, mm. that what you want is something like training and peer review in your journalists and in the editorial structure of uh -huh. your purported news organization. Right. Uh, and I think that actually it would not be too hard to classify the various news outlets that are out there right now in terms of just these things. What kind of formation and training do their journalists have and what kind of editorial structure that they have? Uh, the more partisan uh, outlets tend to have very little editorial structure and very little training, uh, whereas those that at least on the factual front are providing you know, real information about the world, about what's happening, tend to have that editorial structure so that uh, and, and they tend to have people who 
know something. So if it's international reporting, they have someone who knows something about uh, the area being reported on, not just the journalist, but the subject editor or the area editor who will catch errors or uh, check facts. And uh, you can make a pretty, you know, that's hard. It means you have to look at the at the source you're reading and figure out what their editorial structure is, whether they have something akin to peer review and citation in their uh, news reporting. But once you've done that, you have a pretty good way of saying, in general, I'm going to trust uh, the Guardian, for example, you know, the, the British uh, newspaper in general, Spiegel International, which is English language German newspaper, is pretty trustworthy. Uh, whereas, uh, so we've been beating up on, on Breitbart, but, you know, one problem with Breitbart is it's, it's almost a, uh, a blog in terms of the way that their articles come out. Uh, somebody writes something up and they post it. And it's not clear that there's any clear, serious editorial structure by kind of informed, uh, trained uh, journalists or people with real knowledge or reason to think they have real knowledge about, uh, what's being reported on other than their partisan commitments. Uh, so that, so that was where I was going with all that talk about the Academy. Let me though address your, your, your question about the Academy, because you're right. If I want to make this argument, oh, we should trust news sources who mimic the structure of the Academy in the following ways, the ways I just outlined. And people are skeptical of the Academy. Um, then why should they accept my argument from analogy to trusting news sources? Right. Isn't it the same kind of problem? Uh, yeah, well, all those reporters went to liberal journalism schools and they're just, um, you know, they've, they've been trained in the ways of the left. I mean, that will be the, the typical critique. Uh, and I suppose if we could find a, uh, you know, pick out an example of, uh, of a more right-leaning journalism school or a journalism school in uh, a more conservative university, whether private or what have you, then the critique could run that way, right? They've been trained in that way by the by people with that ideological mindset, so that's going to contaminate things. Um, uh, two, two comments here. Um, the first one is this comes back to kind of the original question you asked me about the blurring between politics and epistemology. Uh, the traditional assumption was that questions of, of knowledge and evidence were sort of prior to or could be pulled apart from politics. Right. And we've seen that, you know, that that's being challenged um, to the extent that the university represents one of our great epistemological institutions, um, you know, in the history of all culture, really, surely in the history of Western culture, uh, the fact that it is now the subject of such contentious political critiques and challenges is another way in which we see what we might have thought were independent questions of knowledge becoming politicized, becoming, um, you know, part of that debate. And I do see how uh, surely the same kind of claims get made about um, get made about. Uh, various newspaper organizations, right? So uh, the, the first point I wanted to make is this, this does kind of bring us in a way full circle to the beginning of our conversation about this blurring of the lines. It's definitely happening in the critiques of the university. Um, the second thing I want to say is to try and, and save us from the, the impasse that your question pushes me toward <laughs> or suggests, right? To try to say, nevertheless, uh, you know, I think that, uh, in terms of evaluating 
newspaper sources. So if, if I if I kind of set aside the contentious questions about politicization of the university and just focus on the news, which is what we were talking about primarily, um, I feel like the two questions don't need to stand or fall together. That even somebody who was highly skeptical of the university as an institution or the liberal university need not for that reason be skeptical of a newspaper that cites sources. You know, if there is a report about uh, what Congress is doing, hopefully that report will include at least a few citations of people from Congress, like that they've actually talked to them or been. If they haven't, that's a real problem. If there is an article on the Constitution or a legal case, hopefully some legal scholars of some sort or a judge or someone has been interviewed and consulted. If a newspaper never consults anyone from the places it's writing about or on the topics it's writing about, uh, I feel like that is a partisan neutral sign that uh, you should trust that paper less because they haven't done the due diligence to actually talk not just to the most credible person, but to anyone near the issue. Um, and I feel like that, what I would call epistemological criteria for evaluating testimony, um, that remains. Uh, if a newspaper is publishing views or a news source, an online website is publishing views about foreign policy, but it's not clear they have sent any correspondence there or have any contacts in the place they're writing about, I would hope that right or left, a person could say, oh, well, it is a little dubious then what they're saying uh, until it's confirmed by someone somewhere, somewhere who might actually have connections to the situation on the ground or the political structure, whatever it might be. Um, so there would be my my attempt to, and, and let me propose one more, what I hope is nonpartisan way of determining whether a news source is an accurate one. Um, I would call it their track record. Uh, have they said true things in the past? You know, things that have turned out to be true. Uh, is one question, you know, have I, have I read this and uh, then found that yes, in reality, it really was that way or, or did it turn out? No, um, that was incorrect. And connected to that, does the news source or newspaper uh, publish corrections along with its story? Mm -hmm. Does it at least occasionally when you get to the end, say the original version of this story asserted that X, whatever it might be, and this turns out not to be true. The real person or location or event is this. Um, some newspapers do that. Some journal, online journalism does that. Others do not. And I think that is a huge, again, ideally nonpartisan criteria. Like if you're not even, nobody, you can't say nobody ever makes mistakes. So a news outlet that never corrects its mistakes is suspicious for just that reason. Um, I would put it that way. So there's my attempt. At, so, uh, so you have st you have state you have sort of drawn a line in the sand on this question because um, we we have come back full circle to the um, to the question of epistemology whether it whether we can say that certain facts certain conceptions of knowledge as being neutral precede any political questions and of course uh, it should also just be noted you know we've been talking a bit about the academy the the idea that everything even our pursuit of knowledge with a capital K um, is, uh, 
is uh, the, the idea that, that everything, including that, is fundamentally political isn't necessarily a new one or that it's politicized. It's just it's jarring to see this question being asked implicitly on CNN rather than, you know, in the, in the halls of the academy with, with like postmodern theorists um, um, talking about decentering knowledge and things like this. Um, it's, it's a bit it's a bit troubling. One question I want to ask Again, again, back to this topic of, of epistemic porn is is I th- I think you've been you've been offering good rules of thumb for you know how we can how we can question the texts we encounter um, you know the news sources about the world and how how we can ask questions of ourselves that force us to be honest with ourselves about our motives. And whether we're looking to just have our views congratulated or whether we're, we're honest, earnest pursuers of truth. And one thing that you said at the very beginning of our conversation was that we, we, one of the first things we need to do or, th- or should try to do is take the arguments and positions of most of our interlocutors in good faith and try to think of them as partners in the pursuit of perhaps wisdom, and if not wisdom, then prudence, political prudence, you know, what, what is the best thing or most valuable thing to be done about a given political or economic situation. I think that's, that's true, but there are situations in which, and I think this, this point is raised a lot now in debate, especially in the wake of Charlottesville, is right. that there, there are situations in which you don't necessarily want to or even need to take your interlocutor in good faith. Or you don't need to think of them as being in the same pursuit of truth and goodness as you are. And I think that that's a situation we're increasingly entering. But I, I, I suppose let's take it away from the present moment and take it to the past. So let's okay. say, let's talk about the question of slavery in America. Um, of course, it was always wrong. Um, any argument against slavery is pretty much argument ending. And folks who at the time believed slavery w- was wrong were fine to be congratulated in that view because they were right. Um, I'm not suggesting, obviously, that all issues are cut and dry in this way, but I merely want to ask if an abolitionist, say, were committed in the 1800s to just reading the news and analysis of abolitionist papers, would you consider that person to be addicted in any way to epistemic porn? And do you think that they should have been skeptical of their of their uh, instinct not to want to talk constructively with the other side. Whew, good. A whole, there's, a, there's a whole kind of host of issues that come up with your question. And there are issues that I have been uh, uh, thinking about. One has to do with in a democratic society uh, such as ours, uh, where ideally the principle of charity and a commitment to discourse and argument rather than uh, you know, exclusion and violence is what we're committed to, uh, what obligation then do citizens have to go above and beyond and consider and potentially tolerate or inform themselves about even you know what we are really quite convinced are truly sort of horrendous views. Right, right. And that's part of the question on the table here. Um, and it, uh, I feel like there was a, another question I wanted to mention as well, but let's focus on this one and specifically your question. Uh, I think that even those uh, individuals 
that you mentioned. So the the abolitionists, you know, uh, who quite convinced that they were right. Uh, I think it's still a danger to for for them to consume only that news or only those writings that support their view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a twofold danger. And I think there are lessons here for the present. Um, on the one hand, epistemic porn is epistemic porn. <laughs> and it's corrosive. <laughs> you know it when you see it. You know it, you know it when you see it. And uh, even one can imagine that the abolitionists were also reading and, and probably primarily reading, you know, standards of journalism and writing have changed over the centuries, uh, but uh, decades, really. But it, that they were reading very uh, respectable and well thought out things because there are really good arguments against slavery. Okay, It's not hard, uh, especially from our standpoint now. But even then, it was not, you know, if you just took the major political impulses of the Enlightenment and applied them equally. It was not too hard to get to the conclusion in a country based on enlightenment principles that slavery was wrong. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, to the extent that they were reading things that were only their own point of view and that were sort of congratulatory in the way that epistemic porn is, there's a real danger of uh, training your yourself, let's say your, your character, your character as a knower, as a thinker, uh, as a critical consumer of information to to be a little lazy, to be a little sloppy, um, to be a little too willing to accept what already supports your view, even when what you're accepting is true. Right. Okay, there's a right. difference right. between recognizing the truth and kind of having a character that is predisposed to, you know, attach one's own self-esteem too closely to that. Uh, and I, so I think that you can. Even when you're consuming only true information and only good arguments, if you're not careful and if those arguments are couched and written in a certain way in the way I suggested epistemic porn is, you can actually be harming what I would call your epistemic character even as you consume and argue for only true and correct things. So there's a danger. Uh, The other danger is uh, not being sufficiently informed about even your, you know, truly reprehensible in this case opponents and what they think and what their arguments are um, and what they take the facts to be. To be unfamiliar with those things, I think um, there's a couple of problems there. Uh, one, uh, there's two different kinds of argument. One is an argument in support of your position. Another is an argument against the arguments of those who disagree with your position. And these are two different kinds of arguments. They look different. They'll have different structures. They'll rely on different premises and different kinds of information. And so you can be an expert in arguing for your opinion and then find yourself flummoxed by the argument against it. Um, And this is – so there's one reason why even when you're quite confident you're correct, as your example suggests – you should still be informed about uh, the arguments uh, from that other side. Uh, A second reason is um, that this principle of uh, charity uh, is a kind of principle of not just intellectual respect, but also of recognition of one's fellow human beings. Um, Even as we find the views, you know, surely the view that we're talking about here, that slavery is acceptable and should be left just as it was, even as we find that reprehensible, I think it's still important to find it uh, within ourselves to extend the principle of 
basic respect and charity to the person proposing that claim, not because we're going to accept their claim and implement their policies, but because uh, it is only in that way that we keep them, we treat them and so ideally keep them as someone who is a part of our epistemic community and whose views are subject to uh, consideration, but also to criticism. Uh, and the idea here is there should be a kind of reciprocity. They then have to do the same. But if we're not even willing to do it from our, let's say, correct side, uh, then there's really little reason that they should be willing to do it uh, from their own standpoint. So I think there can, there's a kind of breakdown of trust that happens. Mm. Uh, and I think it's important to preserve that trust until we're on the barricades. I mean, until it's a civil war, until we've just given up on discourse, even the most reprehensible view that we're sure is wrong, we need to know what their arguments are and make the attempt, at least under certain conditions and some of the time, to show them a recognition of their uh, of their basic humanity and of their basic status as thinking, believing beings whose views are subject to consideration and to criticism. Hmm. And just one last thing I'll mention is, uh, and it is kind of connected to the first point, but there is a real danger in not knowing the arguments of, of your opponents, because then when they say you're in a bubble, when they say you don't know anything about us, uh, that's also true <laughs> to a certain extent. Uh, you don't know. Uh, and I do think, uh, you know, I do think we have a little bit of this even in so something I'm very concerned about is some of the, the campus protests of invited speakers that have gone on in the last really in the last decade, but especially in the last years with really contentious people. I grant coming to campuses to give talks being uh, uh, protested. I'm OK with that, but um, shouted down and silenced on college campuses. Uh, I am really concerned about that, uh, as, as what I've already said probably sort of suggests, even those views need to be engaged with, I think, rationally so that it's clear what is wrong with them. But I'm also concerned because if uh, university students in particular, but opponents of those views in general, are so quick to yell and to shout and to shut the views down, I have the lingering question whether those same students or those same people in the broader community really are aware of the arguments and the reasons uh, that you uh, spoke about a while ago. Would they be able to articulate clearly the moral principles and considerations that make something like a racism and surely slavery wrong? Because uh, if we forget those, uh, then we are just com you know, competing, warring sides. It's not that one side is uh, right in what they're doing and the other is wrong. Both sides don't really know that they're right because they haven't thought about it in the right way. So I want that thought to happen before anything else. And so I think for that reason too, even in these extreme cases, which are very contentious and very difficult and cause a lot of emotion, it's important to try to engage those, those arguments on the other side. That was Andrew Spear. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists 
to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Hamilton Center is itself a center for presidential studies. And it's been a year for the presidency. I've said that maybe it's been more than a year now. It's been been, it's been quite a time. Okay. To learn more about our programs, visit houndsandcenter.org and follow houndsandgbsu on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.